Welcome to the Acting Asian Podcast, diving into a journey of acting as an Asian, as well as moments we find ourselves performing Asian. Hello everyone, I hope you are having an amazing day. Today I have a conversation with the lovely Ina Tresvales. She is currently taking a leave of absence as a musical theater major here at Pace University, so we had a conversation about everything about her life so far. So stay tuned. Hello, Ina! Could you introduce a little bit more about yourself? Yes, hi, my name's Ina. I'm an actress and a singer. And when I first introduce myself, I always say that I'm an Aquarius and ENFJT and an Enneagram type 8. I'm from the Jersey Shore and I've been doing music and loving the arts since I was very young. We'll go back to the very beginning. So I'm a child of five. I'm uh, the fourth child in a family of seven. So I have four siblings and I'm the fourth one. That was a really complicated way of saying it. But um, yeah, as a younger, one of the youngest siblings, I definitely have young child syndrome and wanting to be the center of attention. And so I think like singing and performing was definitely my way of like trying to get like attention from my parents and my family and everything. There was a point in time where I actually developed stage fright because I became very cognizant of now people having opinions about me and not all of them being positive. I have tiger parents, so that definitely like has an effect on how I feel about myself and all of my hobbies, including like music, which is something that I really, really love. Um, but yeah, I've been singing from a very young age. Um, and yeah, I guess I've been I've been taking voice lessons for a very long time. And I've always really, really loved music. And I came into theater, which is like my primary, I guess, course of study. Um, but I still love like straight acting. But I came into musical theater in high school, um, sorry, in middle school. And then I got really serious about it in high school when I decided to pursue it full time. Mm. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit more on like currently you, where you study and what year you are too? Yes, so technically I'm a sophomore at Pace University's musical theater program. I have double minors in art and entertainment, business management, and nonprofit studies. But right now I'm on a leave of absence due to COVID, and I've decided to um, pursue another program um, for either straight acting or musical theater. So I'm kind of in that limbo state right now but I'm still enrolled at Pace. I'm still very active in the MT community there. And yeah, I definitely keep in touch with everyone from the program and stay supportive of all of them while I'm not in school right now. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about why you've decided to take a leave of absence and also deciding maybe potentially doing straight acting or just musical theater? The initial reason why I wanted to take my leave of absence is because I did not want that financial stress on my family, especially because musical theater, the performing arts is a very in-person, hands-on education, and it's really hard to get that online. Um, I wanted to ease my parents of that financial stress because um, of the lack of income. My parents are both healthcare professionals, and so you would think at this time, 
they'd be making more money, like seeking more employment. But my dad, who's a physical therapist, is actually not working right now um, because a number of people in our family are very high risk. So that definitely like took a took on a burden for my mom and the rest of her family to to really think about finances and pursuing education. So that's a huge reason why like paying New York City rent to just be in an apartment all day, it I just wasn't worth it to me. And then I started thinking about it more um when I was at Pace and nothing against Pace University's like education, their training curriculum. It's not for everyone. I knew that I wanted a conservatory style training right from the beginning, but Pace was and is still a really, really good program to be in. So I decided to go there. But throughout the months, I knew just like deep down inside that it wasn't the place that I felt like I was going to thrive academically. And and training wise, I wasn't getting that rigorous training that I really wanted. So I decided to audition for solely conservatories. And I really, really love acting. I obviously love singing. It's the thing I've been doing for forever. But the musical theater world and the straight acting world, which I consider like plays, TVs, and film, they're very, very different spaces. You approach acting very differently. You approach performing in these very unique styles that are really specific to each of them. And I really, really like the style of of straight acting and the more truth-based storytelling versus performative uh, storytelling with songs and dance. And I'm also not a dancer, so I'm a strong mover, but not a dancer. So I just thought that it might have always been for me. Um, and so, yeah, I've decided to audition for both acting and MT programs this time around. And so I'm just waiting to hear back from some colleges about that, but it's cool. It's chill. We're just, we're vibing. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I'm just seeing where it all takes me. And if I get it anywhere, um, as long as it's, as it's a conservatory and I did apply to only schools that I really, really thought that I would flourish in, I'll be happy and I'll be grateful. <laughs> I think something that really struck me, and this is something I've been thinking about and I was talking with my program head yesterday, but it was like, I really am interested in a lot of truth-based storytelling. And when you're mentioning on street yeah. and also musical theater, even though they're both performing arts, there are so many different approaches and methods that go into like these different forms. Like there's activism in truth-telling within musical theater, but it may be different from the truth-telling that you are looking for when it comes with straight acting. Um, but that's just really cool when you mentioned that. And I really wish the best for you. And I think it's Thank really you. Yeah, like, <laughs> It's so wonderful that you, but it's really good that you decided to choose a leave of absence. I think considering about all the things that are going on, a lot of people in my program decided to take a leave of absence and they're doing really well. Mm -hmm. Just like kind of taking that time also to recognize what is it do I really want to do in my art and my creations? Exactly. <laughs> And there really doesn't need to have this timeline where it's like, oh, it has to be at this point. Also wanted to ask a little bit about just kind of like your dynamic when it comes with you being the middle child too, um, wanting to be like a center of attention. That's something I feel as like, it's only me and my brother, but I definitely do think as I am the younger sibling, I do think I am pretty attention seeking in terms of the family. But <laughs> yeah, and I was curious how your dynamic kind of goes with your family and 
when you are pursuing and you're continually doing the arts in some way, were they supportive of you? Um, how did they manage to kind of understand where your world of art was coming from? Yeah, so since my parents are tiger parents, if you have a hobby, you better pursue it and you better be the best at it. Like, I'm my parents weren't happy about the fact that like, I I was still taking like classical piano lessons from a very young age, but I didn't like classical music. So then they were like, what, you wanna do pop music? You wanna be a Disney star? Then you know what, let's go to LA and like you prove that you're a Disney star because if not, then you're going back to class. Like they were <laughs> very, very keen on like, if you are passionate about something, no matter what it is, you better be the best. Like that's the kind of tiger parent that they were. And that way they didn't necessarily force me to do something that I didn't wanna do. So I'm very lucky that my parents took that route, but because I'm the fourth child, I have older and younger sibling syndrome in that kind of way. I still feel like a lot of responsibility to achieve things because as an older sibling, like you wanna be a good example. You still have these expectations pushed on you. And every sibling has that that pressure and that expectation. Um, but I think in a way, because the career I'm going into, it has this air of being like, I'm gonna wait tables forever. And unless I make it big, I mean, make it big by, by 25 or something like that. So there's an added pressure that isn't necessarily from my parents, but just comes with the career path that I'm choosing. Um, that's where a lot of pressure comes from. But yeah, I think my parents were always really supportive of pursuing the arts. Um, but when I decided to do it in college, this is the best compliment my dad has ever given me in the entire world. When I told them that I wanted to pursue musical theater, they weren't happy about it. I told them at dinner one day, um, like in, during my senior year, like I already started applying to schools without telling them. So like that was really funny. But audition season was coming up and I was going to have to ask them like, hey, I have to travel to Chicago to audition for these schools. But um, once I told them, they were like really upset about it at first. Um... They were nervous for me. They told me, are you sure you don't want to be literally anything else? And I was like, no, I'm I'm dead set on this. I'm sorry. And then I didn't hear about it for like a couple days. And then at dinner, like a few days later, I'm asking them, so you're cool with me pursuing musical theater? Like you haven't talked about it since that night. And my dad was like, yeah, well we talked about it and we realized that no matter what we say, you're going to do it anyway because you're that driven and you don't wait for permission. I'm like, yeah, I, I, yes, you're right. So that's how that conversation went. I don't think that definitely wouldn't have happened if I was like one of my older siblings too. So I, I know that and I'm very, very grateful and lucky to be in the position that I'm in. Um, so yeah, that's how that all happened and went down and they still have their moments about being unsure. And that's why, that's the reason why I have two minors at Pace is because I want to prove to them that I have this safety net and that I'm always thinking about the what if of it all. That's how I keep my parents appeased and that's how I keep them like settled and okay with this really risky. I see. Yeah, that's like, 
I think, as you mentioned, we're saying like tag your parents. Like, I'm really glad that your parents are really like supportive of you in terms of choosing the arts. Also, because they're kind of knowing your personality. So they're like, <laughs> yeah, you do, you're not going to do anything like you're still going to list not listen to us in some way. Um, but it's good to know that there are moments where they're like, we trust you and you at yeah. some point you're kind of coming in this middle ground to be like okay well this is how i'm gonna make you feel like more satisfied in some way but yeah i think the dynamic with family is something that i really think so often on when it's like we all have like for me and my parents like we have some generational difference in some way where it's like my dad didn't think that pursuing arts was really a viable career path. But I think also mm -hmm. coming into this generation, like he recognizes like, well, this is something that my daughter really likes. And that's something that I'll try to do in order to support her in some way. When we're talking about like generational divide to some degree, do you find some moments um, of conversation where there are generational divide? Every single day, genuinely every single day, my, um, we, we have a lot, a lot, a lot of differences. The funny thing is that me and my four siblings were very like-minded in a lot of ways and our parents have that like generational gap in perspective. So we all get into fights with each other from time to time. Um, one of the things that I guess they had the biggest like or the hardest time understanding is why I wanted to leave Pace in the first place and something that I didn't mention before but I know you've talked about in other episodes is CR Truths and that was something to me personally that I was really really um committed to doing is trying to pursue an education at a program that's supportive of their bi POC artists and obviously when you're at any predominantly white institution, you're going to be tokenized, you're going to be taken advantage of and exploited for your experiences. But at Pace, there was this general disdain for the individual experience. It was all about conforming. And especially with the way the Pace administration has handled the CR Truths movement compared to a lot of other schools that I'm... Um, applying for and their whether or not it is performative but at least a statement on the commitment to anti-racism training and diversity in their program um it seems like pace is the last school um to be doing that right now and it's ironic because it's probably the most diverse mt program in the entire world and it's last it's in last place right now so um, yeah, that's a thing that my parents really can't understand, um, especially because when you're Asian, the model minority myth uh, begs Asian parents and people of their generation to conform to society, to please, and to stay silent and just, I guess, uh, benefit from the detriment uh benefit yeah from the detriment of other uh people of color and so they can't really understand why I would want to stand in solidarity with the by POC at my program right now because if it's not quote unquote happening to me if it's not as bad as those other kids then 
why do I have to risk my education, try to go somewhere else? But I know it's for the better, and I just don't want to give my money and support a program that isn't nurturing my classmates because we're a class. If my black classmate isn't succeeding and thriving in that environment, it we aren't going to. I don't believe in the I don't yeah I don't believe in the success of at the detriment of others, so that's something that they definitely disagree on with me. <laughs> mm, I think that's a really really bold decision that you've done, but I think it's also something that you hold so integral to you, where you're like, this is how I want to make change in some way. Because I think there are people, and it also makes me think there are so many people that will define how so to move along with what we see with CR Truths. Like listening to the movement reports were just absolute like disheartening to see how the Pace University like administration was doing just such a horrid job in handling this situation. But it's so interesting where it's a detriment and you can see this very visible effect where there are people that are like, I just don't feel safe and I don't feel comfortable. And it's not only just you as an individual, you're like, I don't want other people that are in my class to feel like they are hurt because they already have been repeatedly like hurt and traumatized, but still the administration is not doing much on it. Um, but yeah, it's kind of difficult, I think, because sometimes this is something I'm thinking, let's see how I can word this. So <laughs> it's like, so there's a very individualistic um, part of you where you're like, this is, I can't do this. I don't understand why, like, I don't want to be in this administration currently. And your parents are like, wait, as a collective, it's not like you are individually hurt. So how come you have to, like, why are you using this kind of message to do so? And I think that really goes into this generational divide. You've mentioned like the model minority. Um, and I wonder like if that situation really happened to you, I think your parents would then be more adamant on wanting to do so um, and wanting to be like, okay, fine, if that's the decision that you make. But I think you focused, even though as an individualistic action, you were like, I don't want to go here. You really focused on the collective. Like you're like, as a collective, if we can't all thrive together, why should I like be here to contribute in this potential harm that is always going to happen because Pace is not really doing much to really fix that. Um, but I think that's just super cool. It's just really like commendable that you are having a really strong like set of like and a point of view in terms of doing what you want to do. So really good. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I've really... Um, a lot of people are leaving Pace MT's program for other reasons because I guess the name of the program has been damaged by CR Truths. The the loss of Amy Rogers um, doesn't make the program look as shiny anymore. Um, so a lot of people just don't, I don't know, a lot of people just don't want to be a part, like don't want Pace on their resume when they graduate because of its reputation now. And I don't think that's that's the right reason to leave. Hmm, I see. That's so interesting because I feel like I remember someone, one of my friends mentioned or they've said like, oh, I'm worried that people are going to say like there are incoming high school students and from my high school and I don't want someone to say that, 
oh, PACE is a racist institution. And a part of me was like, but every, almost every institution that you go through always will have these certain things that are happening. It's just so that CR Truths happens to highlight this um, and bring mm -hmm. this actually a movement that's going on. It's not a bad thing at all that PACE is being on fire for this. I think it really puts that pressure where it's like, you need to understand that you as an administration need to get your shit together because if you don't actually do so, people are gonna leave. And Pace cares so much about its brand and it's just so infuriating. It's like, don't care about your brand, actually first care about the people that are literally in this institution because they pay money for it. They can be the ones who will give you a good image if they enjoy it and they feel safe in this space. Wow, that's just so frustrating. But I could go, I could go on about this. Truly, I could go on about this. Like, it's so frustrating because I have to think that every university is a business and they're all trying to maintain a brand. That's privatized education, loves. That's privatized education. And the thing about it is that in a, in a privatized education, in a model that that seeks to profit, um, there are gonna be some people whom the structure benefits. There are gonna be people, there are gonna be students who benefit from this model of this white supremacy, truly. And to see people transfer who benefit from the system already, because the system, this PWI was created and founded for that student and who they are, their race, their ethnicity, it's really disheartening because they're transferring for all the wrong reasons. Like they're, they're deciding to leave. They have the privilege to leave. They have the money and resources to start over again somewhere else when a lot of BIPOC can't have to stay at pace because of finances, because they live in the city already because they already invested a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand dollars into it, they can't just leave. So this mass migration of people transferring out of the program whom the institution already uphold upheld in the first place is ex extremely discouraging, extremely off putting, but I could also go on about that. I just won't. <laughs> wow. Mm. <laughs> Like, it goes deeper for me to question, like, who are these people like? Like, for the movement to happen and see this certain thing, like, are who are, like, what roles do they play when movements that seek to bring this transparency and also accountability, where are they? And are they standing in solidarity? Are they leaving just because they're like, I don't want to be, like, seen as, like, ha or have a bad image in terms of my musical career? That's always something I'm thinking about, and I will think about it even more. <laughs> I guess we can first go into talking about your identity then in some way, because I think that's something to hold very integral um, and something that I often think about a lot. But um, how would you say and explain more on your cultural identity and how does that influence you in the spaces that you take up on? Um, even within musical theater as well, or just even the performing arts in general. Yeah, so growing up, I was very aware of the fact that I look different than everyone else. Um, because I'm a Filipino-American, I have darker skin. Um, 
My hair is very, very straight and black. My eyes are really small and I'm just short. So all of these physical traits in a Eurocentric society where the beauty standards are Eurocentric was incredibly disheartening for me. Um, and I was for a very long time ashamed of or loved myself in spite of the fact that I had these Asian qualities, that I had this family that I had this culture around me. Like I tried so hard to strip myself of my identity. And I think something that I'm really, really trying to do and prioritize is study my ancestry and come to terms with the fact that I am not 100% Filipino. I am not 100% American. I'm somewhere in the middle and that's okay. Um, a lot of people like... I think it's really, really nice and awesome if you can fit into one box and know exactly who you are and can play that up in every single audition room and every single role that you get casted for. But for me, especially, like, whenever I see a, a casting call and it's asking for, like, I don't know, like, a, a nerdy student, I know that that's for me, right? Like, I know I'm Asian, like, I got that down. I can play off that role. But if it's a casting call for a girl next door, like, I still have this mental block that makes me ask, like, am I a girl next door? Do people want to see an Asian girl next door? Do people want to see an Asian, like, a romantic lead? I'm still trying to empower myself to go in for things and to be the type of actress that can be multiple things because in the... AAPI representation in Hollywood and musical theater is is very very limited and I think that a part of it is definitely me like closing myself off to these opportunities before I even step into the room but there's a level of rejection that you just need to protect yourself from in the end so I'm trying to balance all of those things and figure out who I am in an artistic space because yeah I don't really know and I think I'm gonna spend the rest of my life figuring that out. Are there people that you look up to or um, either books you've read that helps kind of inform you a little bit to make you feel less alone when it comes or also just formulating your own cultural identity to recognize like, yeah, I am in between. Like I'm not 100% like here. I'm not 100% here. I'm just like right in the middle. Yeah, I think that the, the work that I do admire the most for me personally is the work that is unapologetically like Asian, unapologetically South Korean, unapologetically like Filipino, those experiences that are so rooted in a cultural history that we don't get the chance to see on screen or on stage because it's not American. I might not identify with like Korean dramas, but Korean dramas are so entertaining to watch and so beautiful to fall into a trap into because it's not made for a white audience. I, all of the, all of the films that I've ever watched, all the TV shows and just shows in general that I really connect to and that I really love weren't created for a white audience because it wasn't meant to be palatable. It wasn't meant to be easy to digest. And so another, something else I like I'm thinking about a lot 
as you ask this question, is Ava Noblezada in Hadestown? Queen, right? Obviously. But just the fact that she... No one questioned an Asian person being in this role. It was just Ava Noblezada sitting in this role of Eurydice, and that was that. No questions asked. And I admire every single time a role is cast, regardless of ethnicity, or I I don't really know. Like, of course, she's a she's a fictional character. Eurydice is like a character in a story, or I guess in like a myth. Um, and I love when people get to question or challenge the preconceived notion that this character has to be white because it was a Greek myth and Greek people are white and et cetera, et cetera. That's really beautiful when you say that and saying like, well, it's not meant to be palatable for a white audience. Cause I think now, as I think about it in Hollywood and in musical theater and Cindy Tai in my episode with her was saying like, Musical theater is like inherently like American. It is very deeply rooted in American like values and like the historical implements of it. Um, and whereas film sometimes in television, there can be this ability to transcend to like one different places we can see with K-dramas um, and like anime in some way. And that's really interesting when you bring it like that because there's not this need to focus on it. Whereas I think sometimes in America, we have so many people that come from different cultural backgrounds and we're like, oh, we want to focus on diversity and inclusion. <laughs> it's like, but sometimes when I think about it, I'm like, what is diversity and inclusion sometimes targeted towards? Like when universities utilize that or predominantly white institutions use that, are they doing so to be like, well, look, like, this is a performative way of showing that we have a sense of representation. So be happy about it. That's good. But that's not true. It's like, how come, why are there so many individuals that are expressing these thoughts of why do I feel like I don't fit in? Or why do I feel like I have to like chip away a little bit of my own Asian identity to like feel like I belong here? Yeah, exactly. And that's a huge reason why I decided to step away from musical theater or at least like venture down different avenues because I don't want to perform for audiences that don't look like me every single night. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want to be doing projects the rest of my life where the entire casting agency is full of white people. Like, I don't, yeah, musical theater is made for white audiences. It's run by a white audience. And so the people that make the decisions are white. And musical theater is inherently American, you know? Like, I'm not going to be studying, like, there's... I could probably list, like, less than 50 musicals that are written by, like, Asian people. And probably five of them have been on a Broadway stage, and so because of those numbers alone, like I don't want to commit to a career my entire life where I'm just appeasing a white audience because that's what makes me the most money. And another thing, totally off topic, <laughs> I just wanted to share this. I've like decided to watch every single Studio Ghibli film. So because when I was little, I rejected Asian culture. I hated Pokemon. I hated video games. I hated like, like, um, 
Avatar The Last Airbender, like all of that stuff that Asian kids really love because I was ashamed of being Asian. Like I just wanted to watch Hannah Montana and that was it because all of my classmates were watching it. Like I wanted to watch Shake It Off. And so I decided to watch all the Studio Ghibli films. I'm still not finished with all of them, but I have HBO Max and they have all the Studio Ghibli films on HBO Max. The frustrating thing is they don't have, they have all of them dubbed in English. And I decided to buy Totoro in Japanese on YouTube because I wanted to hear the original actors because these original actors were acting, were doing voiceover acting for their Japanese audience, for the audience that it was intended to. And there's no there's no argument there's no denying the fact that when you put a white person in an asian story even if it's just so that they could reach more people and have it more accessible to more people in a different country it's incredibly frustrating because you're not going to get the same emotion you're not going to get the same connection to character because that's a different person that's a different place in a different time that you can't understand because you are not you don't have that ancestry. You don't have that cultural identity to that character. And so I guess dubbing is good because you can reach more people You and, and share your art with a different audience that never would have seen it in the first place. But that erasure, that's literally the erasure of a voice. And it's mind-blowing that it's normal. So yeah. Oh, oh my God. And that brings up the argument. People were talking about how like, yeah, maybe if Parasite was dubbed in English, maybe it would have been well received. And I'm like, please tell me how a white person was going to properly voice over a character who struggles with the class segregation in an Asian country. They're not, you can't identify with the same story. So yeah, I was just thinking about that recently, and that question reminded me of that, so that was my tangent. Oh, like when I was young, I watched Yu-Gi-Oh! And I watched it dub, because it was in America, and I always, I grew up thinking that Yu-Gi-Oh! was American. But that was just a freaking, like, that was when I was a young kid! It's a lie! It's a lie! It's all a scam, Isabel! They're trying to brainwash us! <laughs> <laughs> Just to actually have the original creation without it being rendered is already just beautiful as it way like as the way that it is because I think in some way of using dub like if we're analyzing this even deeper it's kind of you're recognizing that well this is not accessible for you but once we are able to dub it into English um, or a language that you are able to understand then okay then this will be able to finally be perfect for you to watch and it's like Bong Joon-ho the director of Parasite said something where it's like if you actually like okay I wish I could quote this word for word <laughs> essentially he was saying like if you are able to jump over to that barrier of like subtitles you're going to be introduced to a wider amount of and so many different stories there's a whole world of stories just beyond that threshold and that's why I love film and TV because you know in a musical theater like you can't there's no live subtitles like you're not gonna be reading like a little bar that's underneath a stage you know what I mean there's a there's a physical 
there's a physical gateway that you have to cross. And with film and TV, it's so much more accessible to so many different audiences. You can share your story, your experience with, uh, with people that don't understand it yet. That's what I love so much about, about it. Was there ever any like defining moments for you where you're recognizing like, I don't want to continually assimilate myself or try to reject my Asian identity. Instead, I want to embrace that. Well, this is my circumstance. Like I have like I have seven siblings. I'm the middle child and I am really proud to be Filipino American. I still like to this day, as much as I want to like feel empowered about who I am Again, like, I'm still struggling with that every single day and finding my space in a white, in a white industry. But you asking that question reminds me of, (laughs) so we all know I'm Filipino-American. Now we do. Um, Miss Saigon is a Vietnamese story, right? And because a lot of people think, oh, Filipinos and Vietnamese people, they look pretty similar. You know, they have the same flat noses. They're a tan, let's just cast all the Filipino people in this Vietnamese role, like, it's close enough, right? So, when I was, like, a, a few years ago, up until, like, this last year, like, I was really trying to get into Miss Saigon. Like, I was like, if I become Kim in Miss Saigon, like, that's it for my career. Like, I'm going to be famous forever, right? And I thought to myself, like, it's close enough. Like, if Ava Noblezada, a Mexican Filipina woman can play a Vietnamese girl like why can't I like I'm Filipino American like their experiences are close enough and to me I'm still trying to unlearn the idea that I'm close enough to something because I think the me forcing an identification with a culture a history a story that I do not understand is erasing my own identity, my own culture, my own history. Because, you know, you can be multiple things. You can have, like, multiple stories and multiple experiences that you can identify with. But I've tried so long, like, chasing a different story, like, another person's story, another person's history, because the white industry told me that I was close enough to it. But I... And I I don't mean to erase or, like, um, what's the word? I don't mean to, I don't mean to disregard talent, you know, um, research, all of those things that make a beautiful story great. Um, but I'm also not going to try to take away a spot from someone that does identify with that. Like, let me go for the stories that are mine. Like, I'm not, I do not have family that was war stricken by like US imperialism and that's okay. Like, I don't, I don't need to have that line on my resume. Like, I wanna do things where I'm a Filipino American. Like, I wanna, I want to be allowed to live in that space and not feel like there's something else that I should be doing because it looks better. I think that is something that you've like, what you provided is something that you're still thinking about because I think that's something throughout your career you might see 
Um, I think about this really often in terms of I don't want to do or play something that is close enough, but also at the same time, like people are like, oh, well, in Hollywood, out of Asian representation, East Asian representation is the most and it's the most prominent. And I happen to be East Asian. So it's just like figuring out, for example, with To All the Boys I've Loved Before, um, Lana Condor is Vietnamese, I believe, and she is playing as a Korean American in To All the Boys I've Loved Before. And it's wondering like, oh, well, I never know, like, because there are so little Asian representation or little roles already, like, am I going to play a, like, is there going to be a story where it could be pertaining to my experience? Or is it going to be something where it's like, well, I'm close enough, like I'm Asian, so I can play this story. Girl here's the gag in this entire conversation like this specific part of this conversation right now we are trying to make sense of the competition between members of the AAPI community when it's the responsibility of the white people in power to give us these opportunities like the reason why we have to compete for these like very few Asian roles is because white producers don't want to invest in Asian screenwriters and, and 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 writers to write stories for us. Like it's it's not the fact that there is too little Asian plays being written, too little Asian movies being written. It's the fact that the demand for it is lower. And so there's not as much money getting invested like that's that's the whole that's the fact that we're like talking about this competition when it's not our fault for being for competing against each other like the more i think about it i'm like i want to try and write stories or i want to try and be able to highlight different stories of different people but also just recognizing like where where in my position of power do I hold? What are some stories that I shouldn't be able to tell? But if I had the platform, I could allow other people to be able to tell their stories instead. But yeah, I don't know, it's so hard. Like we're talking about this and we're all like just 20, 21. I know, I'm like, I don't got all the answers. I'm like, I wish I knew everything that was going on, <laughs> but I have no fucking clue. Um, are there certain things that like in terms of recognizing your identity like what kind of stories would you want to tell um and because of what you see with the lack of stories that we see on the entertainment industry what are some stories that you think would be wonderful and kind of slowly you can also say some works that you've seen that kind of mirror a little bit of your experience to some degree even though it was produced in a different year or by a different author, etc. Um, something that I'm really thinking about recently is Yellow Rose. It's like a, it was like a short film starring Ava Novozada, and she plays this, um, she just plays this like 16 year old girl whose mom is an illegal immigrant. She gets taken by ICE, and so Ava Noblezada's character has to make it on her own in America. She wants to do, like, country music and, like, be a regular American girl and not have to struggle with the fact that she's of a different race in, a, in Texas, because this is, takes place in Texas, and, like, her, like, assimilation into white culture while still struggling with this part of her identity. 
that's embarrassing and almost shameful in a way. I want to see more stories of people like us who are first-gen Americans who are still struggling with who they are because none of us got it figured out. Literally no one has it figured out. I think that people pretend they have it figured out up until the day they die. But I want to see more stories where people are like that because I'm so tired of like hearing and seeing that all these people have it figured out. They know their place in society. They have found their voice as an artist, as a person in this world. And I still don't have it figured out. And I think that if I ever get to that point, I want to write a story about it. And I want to see people write stories about it because, yeah, I think that that's the biggest, I think that's the existential struggle of being someone like us is not, is, is knowing that we have two places to fit in, but not feeling like we fit in enough into either of them. Cause that's how I feel. <laughs> Ever since I came to college in New York and I left home in Taiwan and that was like the first time where I was living on my own and those were the moments where I was like wow because before when I was in Taiwan I was like I can't wait like I wish I was in America like I identify with the American culture like what Taiwanese like no I don't like <laughs> so not cool but when I came over here in New York City and I was like wow like everyone seems like, there's just this culture shock that goes into it, but also is recognizing, like, wow, I am actually really proud to be Taiwanese in some way, but I also had no idea where home was because I was like, I lived in California, I live in New York, I lived in Taiwan. Like, these are three locations where I was like, where, like, there never really was a set place where I felt like I was home. And also, I don't have any clue of how my future is to be like yesterday i had a call with my program head crying going like everyone looks like they have everything figured out and I don't know what I'm gonna do. um and i love those like those are the stories that i really love to tell and similar with what you were saying it's like i want people like i want to see more transparency of people just not knowing what the hell's going on but they're willing to say and share what's going on in their mind because who knows someone when you're having this conversation you realize you're not alone like we're all there kind of feeling the same part of loneliness all together and the same part of i don't know what's going on but still we're trying to find our sense of space and comfortability and how we can flourish in a place not knowing where home is um but yeah no that's like a really that's a pretty big concept to really I think of I was thinking about that recently, like the concept of home. Ever since I was little, like whenever I would go back to the Philippines with my family, like I would say to my friends, like, oh, I'm going home for like Christmas or like, oh, I'm going home this summer. And I guess like I, I, I always referred to the Philippines and like my grandma's house as home because that's what my mom calls it. Like that's what my dad calls it. Like that's where they grew up. They call that home. And they would be like, oh, like you were born in the Philippines. And I'd be like, no, I, I wasn't born in the Philippines, but I just call it home. And they would say things like, if you, if you didn't come from there, like if you were born here, that's not home to you. Like if you, 
they were, and, and it made me feel like, wait, that's the place that I feel most comfortable. Those are the people, those are where my loved ones identify home with. But yeah, like, if I was dropped in the middle of that island, like, I wouldn't be able to find my way around. Like, I don't speak Tagalog. Like, maybe that's not home for me. But then I'm on the Jersey Shore and, like, no one looks like me. No one acts like me. No one has the same family customs as me. People wear their shoes on inside the house. Like, I, like, I don't feel like this is home either. So where the hell do I fit? Like, that's what I mean by, like, having the privilege to to fit to to identify with two places but not feel like you fit in enough that's like those are the kinds of stories that I want to see more of yeah and I definitely think that's something I am able to see little glimpses of in like independent or like indie filmmaking mm-hmm um, and yeah, I think that's definitely something to consider potentially if you want to do. Um, Absolutely. Um, 100%. Yeah, no. And I think this is something I'm curious about. And this is something I think about because I am in a class where it is predominantly white because it is a PWI, um, especially when it comes with acting or your musical theater classes back when you were um, still taking classes. How do you feel in a space focusing on your like craft? Do you feel like the environment was something that made you feel comfortable in? Well, something that definitely came up a lot, like I was assigned to a voice teacher that really, really harnessed and like, and, and focused on training your classical voice, your legit voice. And when I was growing up, like I only sang pop music and like R&B. And I think that's like a very Filipino thing. Like I only listened to like Bruno Mars, basically like that kind of music. And when I was told I had to start singing like classically and legit, I felt extremely insecure because uh, funnily enough, the only people that had like legit classically trained voices in my program were white people. Not to say that the like the BIPOC in my class like weren't good at singing legit. It just wasn't their first, it, it wasn't what they were trained in first. Like they weren't singing, Golden Age wasn't their first um, genre of musical theater that they were going to, like, they were going into, like, pop rock musicals and stuff, um, and so that definitely came up a lot, and, uh, luckily in most of our classes, other, other than voice lessons and stuff, I didn't really have to worry about singing legit in something, because, like, musical theater is mostly pop rock nowadays, but that's definitely something that came up that made me feel extremely insecure. Another thing that I could go on about and a lot of like BIPOC in my class could go on about is how generally the white people in America have the privilege of generational wealth that allows them to invest in their children's hobbies in a different way than by POC families do in America. Like, and, and families like approach hobbies differently. You know, if you're, if you're a white parent, I think you're more inclined to invest in something like the arts for your kid because you have that income, you have that access. Um, 
a huge identifier or like descriptor of a first world country is the ability to invest in the arts, to invest in the culture and the arts. If you are coming from a family that is a third world country, you don't necessarily have that. You might have a an appreciation for culture and the arts, but you don't have that societal practice of investing in it. And so when we came to school, almost all of the BIPOC students maybe did have some like serious training in either voice or dance or acting or whatnot, but like these white students are coming in as triple threats, like being able to like kick their faces already, like years of acting training, maybe went to a private high school with an arts program. That was a huge like difference between the BIPOC students and the white students in my program. And I think that's probably the same anywhere else you go. Um, and if you are a BIPOC person that had the privilege of being able to study it before you went into college, like seriously and professionally, you are an outlier. You're really an outlier. There's also like, of course, uh, I actually, I'm not even getting into that, but, um, yeah, that's something I definitely recognize. And I'm going to go back to my first point about like classical and legit training in soft, uh, in the spring of my freshman year, we did like two, um, I guess, workshops of shows. One was Love Life, and that was like in partnership with the New York City Center. Um, and that was like a pre-production. So like we were going to work all of the scripting, all of the, the blocking for the show prior to the professional cast coming in. So we were just going to be like their chess pieces, right? And the second one, that one was going to be like a workshop of a new pop rock show for Disney. So obviously I wanted the pop rock show. I did not want to be a part of this golden age, like revival of a show that was legit soprano stuff, you know? And so I came in to my audition for Love Life, which was the golden age show with this song that was golden age, but I was told it wasn't golden age enough and they wanted to hear my soprano voice. And they did not distinguish in the casting call that they wanted like a legit sound. And if you listen to Kurt Vile's music, he was the composer of Love Life. His music was very, um, it was very, very jazz influenced, which is black art. And so being told that I had to come in to my audition for a show that was influenced by black jazz music with a song that was legit and legit music is traditionally white and European style made me feel like I was definitely, I was just not white enough in that audition room. And I still got cast in it, which I'm grateful for, but there are just clear discrepancies between in in the language that our faculty used in order to kind of sidestep the fact and and, and uh in order to avoid calling our work not white enough and I was very very aware of that like my entire time at Pace, ballet, 
is like another thing that was definitely a struggle, but I could keep going on about it and I won't, so yeah. Ah, there's so many things and so many elements that go into exploring all the things that have happened and when you've mentioned with like classical training and how that is people come in with triple threats because people also like their parents would usually fund them for an all around like arts training like that's something that I never really thought about because my impression was like okay most people that are in musical theater have already maybe have like a general basis of what's been going on. But like, wow, so many people have been involved in arts training before coming here. And like, it's professional, um, especially, and I can't imagine even with musical theater, because that is like probably the strongest one that Pace really advocates towards. This and the story that you shared to me is also very similar in talking about faculty sidestepping others and kind of letting you audition in this even though it's a great opportunity that you were able to have but it made you wonder like oh did I have the fulfillment and the requirements to do this or maybe there's someone who is white who actually can fulfill this role and not me this this amount of mind that you're thinking about it all this time you're spending so much mental energy on it when you can also utilize that for performing but because you're like wow like I don't think this is right. I don't feel comfortable in this. You're like performing, but you're also thinking about this in the back of your head. And that's a lot that goes into it. And strong kudos to you and also a lot of the BIPOC students at your program that are really just trying to go through with all this stuff and also still like deciding. Like some that are staying in this space to continue their education in hopes that we can decolonize this um, program and also like the performing arts in general and others who are like I think it's best that I look for other opportunities that can potentially just like value me as who I am as an individual and not make me feel like I have to assimilate in some way because you think a lot about the events and social situations and social issues that go around with your performing and in your art in general um, do you feel like in America we have more like inclusion of AAPI stories or actors. I think that a lot of, it's a shame because a lot of people have to supplement their, I guess their desire to learn these stories in different countries. Like, I think it's awesome that South Korea like has an investment and a real desire to create space for art. Um, a lot of like, I think South Korea is unique in being one of the only countries other than, I guess, the Philippines, because that, that has a huge, like, Filipino Hollywood. Um, but a lot of people have to supplement their stories elsewhere to, to see Asian people on the screen. Like, that's why K-dramas are huge in the U.S., because there are little to no Asian TV shows being produced in America. You know, there are little to no Filipino movies being produced in America. People have to, like use VPNs to go on Filipino Netflix to watch Filipino movies. They have to go on a VPN to go to Netflix India to watch Bollywood movies. Um, I think there's an undeniable presence of the AAPI community in Hollywood, um, which I think is beautiful. And like you touched on before, like I think that a great percentage of it is East Asian stories you're not necessarily finding Southeast Asian stories. 
um, in, in Hollywood necessarily. I think that beggars can't be choosers when you are asking Hollywood to be this way. So I guess you can be grateful and like I can be grateful that I even see Asian people on screen, but it's definitely not enough. And it makes a huge, it makes a huge difference. Representation makes a huge difference. And yeah, there is a demand for it, undoubtedly. Um, but until white producers see the profit in the demand, I don't, I don't think it's, I don't think this situation is changing anytime soon. I think a huge part is recognizing that we need to have more BIPOC people who are in positions of power, um, in positions of producing, in directing, and like to be able to be in this like hierarchical ladder and to be able to utilize this power to gain more stories and gain more access. I think that is something in our class we often talk about, like you have to be in the room um, to be able to ignite change in some way. Like maybe, oh, I want to invite in a BIPOC writer into the room. Um, and so they can depict this specific experience and they can know how to do so. And I think this is what happens when Hollywood, even though people are like recognizing we need more representation, Hollywood is always going to be slower than the people who demand for change. And we have to keep, I think that's something so important to keep advocating or just even just being in a space. Like you don't have to say much, but you can, like you just being there says a lot um, in bringing this transparency and also visibility. Um, but yeah, I guess this also even extends to the community. Um, I was curious on your thoughts with what we see a lot in the news where we see a lot of AAPI hate, all the things that have been going on these past few weeks and months, actually months and almost a year already. I'll say two things right off the bat. Number one, there's no, out of all of the beep, uh, the BIPOC communities in America, there is no, elderly by POC community being targeted as much as the Asian community. I will never understand why it's one of the most vulnerable communities. And it's just so fascinating to me that people can be this way. Like 80 year old grandmothers, you're like, beating on the side of the head, that just shows a level of ignorance and hate that I think can never be explained. Secondly, there's an undeniable connection between the rhetoric of people in power and the violence towards AAPI communities this past year. I don't know if people are just tired and bored and want and need to take their anger out on someone because of COVID and like being stuck at home and things like that. I'll just never make sense of it. And I'm still trying to comprehend how this could be an epidemic 
in America. It's not happening anywhere else in the world, but the United States. And it's not happening to any other demographic of Asian people, but elderly people. There has to be something there that we're missing that we haven't studied yet that we need to observe more. And I think time will uncover it all. But right now, yeah, the community's hurting. And I don't think that... And I, th and I think that your activism has to include everyone. It can't... The, yeah. It's just a lot. Something that just came to my mind when you're thinking about... And you're saying about, like, the AAPI elderly um, have been the targeted the most. I think one thing also really important is language, too. I think sometimes um, because there's an assumption AAPI elderly do not understand English or they don't know how to speak mm -hmm. English fluently, that therefore they're seen as, oh, well, you don't understand what's going on. You don't understand what I'm doing. Absolutely. And that is incredibly infuriating because it's like, this is another form of you're hurting people because they don't understand this language. And when we see as English has to be a dominant language that, oh, it's just, it's infuriating to see that because it's like, if you spoke to this elderly person in the language that they're comfortable in, they are able to respond to you. It's just that because they don't happen to know um, this language, this dominant language that we use so often, we then like, there's this, suddenly there's this like view of like oh your intellect is like not as well or if i hurt you you probably wouldn't like say anything. understand or say anything yeah and that's also something we see really often in the asian community that we deal with i guess we will lead also to the last um few questions this will be one of the questions i hope maybe as a visualization for you what do you really hope to do in the future, what are some things that you love and would want to do? <laughs> um, so a lot of people like answering this question as being like, I want to be in a movie so that people see like an Asian face, you know, like I want to be that girl who like little Asian girls look up to because they see their face. Like I, and that's not that for me. Like I, you know, that's that's all awesome. That's cool to be a person that other like little kids look up to, but that's not me. That's not me. Um I always I always quote this and I know it's going to sound so pretentious right now, but in Uta Hagen's book Respect for Acting, she writes that um rebellion does not always find its self expressed in violence. Sometimes um, I think it was like sometimes a stroke of a pen or a word could be a revolution. And so that's what I want my work as an artist to be. Um, I don't know what I'm going to do yet. Just the fact that I don't know if I'm pursuing musical theater or straight acting it just tells you a lot about me and what I think I'm going to do in 10 years. Word, right? That's what's happening. Um, but I know that one day, long term, I want to know that whether, my, whether it's just my physical presence in a room 
or on a screen or something that I write creates like a positive impact on the AAPI community, like that'll be enough for me. I, I don't know again what that's gonna be yet. I have a lot of like cool ideas for like plays that I wanna write and like like screenplays that I wanna write. Um, but yeah, I have no idea what I wanna do yet, but I know that I love activism and social justice and I think that art is the greatest way to achieve that. And so somehow I'm going to find a way to marry these things. But I'm only 20, so, like, I don't know what I'm doing yet. <laughs> I think that's so incredible, and I really can't wait to see you thrive in wherever you decide to go and also whatever actions you do. I genuinely do believe this. It's, like, if this is something you're so, so passionate about, no matter where you're going to end off, like, where you're going to be, um, who knows if you're going to wait tables or not, but like you're eventually going to be to where you want to be. <laughs> you're like, no, I'm not sure, but <laughs> no, but it's like you're always going to find a way to get to where you want to be. It may not be how you visualize it now, but as you see it later in the future and you look back in your life, you'd be like, oh, wow, all the things that when I was yeah. lost in this moment, that actually really helped me a lot. So this also leads to the last question. What do you find it is to be acting Asian for you? I read this in the Google Doc and I was like, girl, that is so meta. Let me think. Acting Asian to me. I'm going to go back to something that I've already said. Acting Asian, because I am Asian, I hate the word acting because it has this connotation of being something else or being something different than you're not like that's the same idea with like being in a play being someone that you're not being a character that you're not acting Asian to me I reject the idea that I have to act like anything like Asia being Asian is a part of my identity so I would like to kind of approach that question as more like being Asian or like being just the person that I am. I want to be unapologetic about every facet of my life and of my identity. And acting Asian means being an American and also Filipino having an ancestry that I have and a future and a and a generational gap that no other person can understand and yeah to me that's what acting Asian is <laughs> thank you so much that is a wonderful response and do you have some things you want to share so for people to kind of get in contact with you um, or upcoming projects you're looking forward to um, to let just like a little shout out of all the creative endeavors or just personal Instagram accounts and stuff that you want to share. Nothing's on the horizon right now, which is exciting. <laughs> that means the whole world is my stage and I can do whatever the hell I want. But if you want to keep in touch with me and and keep updated on any of the projects that I am going to be doing in the future, um, my Instagram and all of my social handles are Ina Tresvalis, so Y N A 
T-R-E-S-V-A-L-L-E-S. -E -E and if you have any questions, hit me up. If you want to talk about being an AAPI, a musical theater kid or an actress, if you're navigating this and just need a friend, hit me up because we're all in this together and the AAPI community only thrives when we help each other out. And so drop a line. I'm, it's always open. <laughs> Very true. Please go talk to Ina. What an amazing human being. But thank, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having this conversation with me. It's such a pleasant surprise to be able to finally like reconnect with you and also talk a little bit more about all the things that have been on your mind. Thank you so much for giving me the space to talk about all of this. I really, really appreciate it. This is awesome. This is freaking awesome, Isabel. <laughs> Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of Acting Asian. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to share, like, <laughs> or subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify Podcasts or anywhere where you listen to podcasts. Well, I hope you have a great, amazing rest of the day. See you soon.